about you. And so we're thankful and appreciative. And I don't want to put undue pressure on you this morning, but I will. What we're going to talk about this morning has eternal consequences. If you don't understand it and you don't get it right, it could determine your eternal destiny. Now, some messages we preach have temporal value in terms of a better marriage, don't feel so depressed, have a sense of purpose and design in life. This message goes to the core of all that we claim in Christ, and when we get it wrong, it has eternal consequences. So I hope I have your attention now. So let me read the text. We're in the book of Galatians. It's all about the freedom that we find in Jesus Christ. And the book of Galatians is written to a group of people that probably lived in places we call Turkey today. We don't have specific addresses for where these churches were or who these people were, but they were new believers, and Paul wants to straighten them out in terms of what they believe and what they should not believe. And so we read in Galatians chapter 1, and I encourage you to have your Bibles in hand or use the Bible that's in the chair rack in front of you for these wonderful words that Paul gives to us as he gave it to them. I'm going to begin in verse 6. It says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's why it's so key, a different gospel. There are many gospels out there. It's a different one that they're adhering to now, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong language. And as we have said before, so I say again to you. So it repeats it. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. So when you say something two times in a row, almost repetitively the same, Paul wants to make a point. You're getting the wrong gospel. If you get the wrong gospel, you get the wrong destiny. And so that's why I began with my little precursor here today. Then he says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? So what he's going to say, what we're going to say this morning, is not always pleasing to people. Or am I striving to please men? No. If I were trying to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so he's gotten some real core stuff here. And you have an outline that is available for you in the bulletin. I encourage you to follow along. And I can't always say everything that I thought about this last week. And so I stick some of that on the back side, what we call the digging deeper. I encourage you to take a look at that. This morning we're going to deal with this deserting freedom. Why would anybody want to desert? And it goes back to this passage here in verse 4 where the Apostle Paul says this. Let me actually begin in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us or rescue us out of this present age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Then he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Jesus. Now, Jesus has rescued them. He's rescued us from sin, present evil age. But they are deserting him. Let me illustrate and help you remember this. On the big screen behind me, 
is Lucy. Joy and I are foster parents of Lucy. Lucy is a uh, mutt, and uh, she was rescued by our niece, my sister's daughter, and her name is Alexis. Alexis lived with us for a couple of years. And I asked Alexis if you would mind if I shared a little bit about the story of Lucy and how you rescued her. And she says, absolutely, that would be great. In fact, tell them that not only did you rescue Lucy, but you rescued me. And in point of fact, we did. She was going through some challenges at the time. So she came and lived with us for a couple of years. So in the course of that, she brought Lucy. We said, yes, Alexis, we'd love to have you come. We didn't know that Lucy was part of the package, but she is part of the package. And now Alexis has moved to another location. Lucy is still with us. And so we have Lucy, and then we have another little Scottish Terrier, Izzy, and they get along really well. It's amazing. Anyways, back to the story. Lucy was rescued by Alexis. Alexis loves to help those who are the downtrodden of life. She's got a heart and compassion for those who are weak or having struggles. And Lucy was a street dog, lived on the street. When they found Lucy, she had matted hair, had been overgrown. She had hundreds of ticks and fleas on her. Lucy is missing half of her teeth. And so somewhere in the course of her life on the street, she lost her teeth, maybe in a dog fight. And so now when she eats, she has to eat on one side of the mouth. And so uh, we try to help her with that. Anyways, not, not really. But uh, we, we care for her, at least, in that respect. The thing that's really interesting about Lucy is that uh, having been rescued from that miserable way of life, she was rescued into a home and now is in our home. And you notice that Lucy is lying on our family room couch. But not only is she lying on our family room couch, that's not good enough. She wants to be on the pillow on the family room couch. And in front of Lucy is one of her toys that squeaks. And above Lucy, you will see Joy's slipper. <laughs> so when we come home from wherever we were, like today when we come home from church, she will bring us either that toy or one of Joy's slippers or one of my slippers or one of my shoes. She brings us gifts when we show up at the door. She's so thankful that we have come home. Now, Lucy loves to sleep on the pillow. She sleeps on a couch that, at the foot of our bed, all wound up in a little blanket. During the daytime, she'll go out and sleep on the concrete out in the back, lay on the sun, sunbathe. Lucy will go out there and do her business on the grass. I'll clean it up for her, no charge. <laughs> Lucy will eat food that we give to her free of charge. We don't charge her for that. She'll drink water that we don't charge her for, even though we have to pay for it. It's free for her. Lucy has doggy heaven, right? Our dogs are probably the best treated anywhere in people or animal kingdom of anything. Now imagine if Lucy came to me and could talk. Just imagine. She can't. She loves to bark. She's way too yappy for my liking. But imagine if Lucy came to me and says, Dave... I've decided to desert you and go back to life on the street with all those ticks and all those fleas, all those other animals. She had just given birth to puppies when she was rescued. 
It's all these other animals that have done terrible things to violate her. Can you imagine that Lucy would ever want to return to that way of life? No way in the world would she ever want that. She does indeed have doggy heaven. Now imagine, why do those people then, who have been rescued from this, as Paul calls it, present evil age, why would they desert the very one who has given to them a heavenly home, who has given to them all that life could ever desire in this world today, who can promise to be with him, with her, constantly, that can empower, that can bless, that can provide, that can guide, that can direct, that gives purpose, and has an eternal home waiting for us. Why would anyone want to leave that behind any more than I can't imagine Lucy ever giving up that pillow on that couch to go sleep on some gutter somewhere to her former way of life. And yet people still do that. It's driving Paul nuts, and I don't understand it either. So the point that I want to make is we need to understand the problem of deserting Jesus Christ who rescued us. It makes no sense to go back to what we left when Jesus says, I've got something so much better for you. As Paul says again, Galatians 1.6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. He is amazed. He can't believe it. Any more than I would believe that Lucy would want to go back to life on the street. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Jesus who called you into this, this wonderful grace of Christ for a different gospel or another gospel. Why would you do that? So it's troubling to them. It's it's change that makes no sense to Paul. It's, it's this element of uncertainty that he just doesn't get. Now, I'd like to speak to something else that creates uncertainty. So I'd like to have a little family talk. Family talk. Uh, I am the assistant to that senior pastor, and so I'd like to represent the senior pastor for just a moment. That would be Jesus. One of the things that creates uncertainty is when we just don't know what's going on. One of the uncertain features of that day in Galatia, they just didn't know. So there was uncertainty. So they were drifting back to what they thought they knew that was seemingly better, but it was wrong. There's kind of an uncertainty that I'm sensing as a pastor here at Calvary Church. And part of the uncertainty is because of who's up here or who's not up here, whether it's preaching or leading in worship. So I get it. I get it. I understand that. And I want you to understand there's a sort of a philosophical bent behind what we try to do here. And we're imperfect people, and we don't always get it right. But here's a reality check that I have to face. Every time, every time I look in the mirror, I don't see who I think I am when I think about myself in my own mind's eye. I see an old guy, right? I'm 66. I know I don't look 66. That's what you were thinking, of course. One of the things that we think about a lot here, at least I think about a lot here, is that I want Calvary Church to get better and better the older Calvary Church gets. And our desire is at age 100. We're 85 now as a church. We're 85. 
And at age 100, I'd like for us to be the best church that God would ever want us to be, to fulfill all that God has ever designed us to do. And the reality is that in 15 years, I'm going to be super, super elderly at that time. So I don't expect myself to be doing what I'm doing today. And so therefore, it's part of my bent, my philosophy, that I've invited the elders into a succession plan, a transition plan, and an understanding of God. What would you have us to do over this next 15 years? And so part of our desire that has been taking place of late is to have some of our younger pastors who are terrific young men. In second hour, we have them preach rotating through all the time. We've not done it so much this hour, but we've tried to introduce the idea to this hour. Because I want this to be a seamless transfer of succession when the time comes. And I don't know the timing, and I don't know the who, but there will be a period of time when we need to understand that there's going to be new leadership. But I don't want us to lose sight of the core of who we are as a church. And that's what we're going to be talking about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whoever is up here, we still unite around who Christ is and his unchanging gospel. Likewise, in terms of worship, we want to have worship that's meaningful, that's vibrant, that's passionate, that's biblically correct, that brings us into the presence of God. And so we've had people like Justin come and And he's not going to be the full-time worship pastor someday. He he doesn't want to do that. But he's an old Bethany friend that I've just gotten to know, point of fact. He is today at Bethany Bible Church where my dad pastored for like 30-plus years. So that's where his home church is. But he's come to help us to think about this because he's done at Bethany some of the things we're thinking about doing here so we can have more unified worship where somebody elderly elderly like me you're supposed to say no Dave you're not elderly (laughs) where somebody elderly like me (laughs) thank you but don't make me have to prompt you I would love to be able to worship with somebody who's 20, side by side, where we're united together, not segregated by age or stylistic things that are different or dress codes, but that just we come and say, Jesus, you are the one we come to exalt. So we're looking for leadership that can help us move into the next 15 years, both in terms of those who preach and those who lead in worship that can help us unite together and be even stronger at 100 than we are today. So that's why it gets unsettling. It's unsettling to me. I've been doing what I do for 40-plus years. It's hard for me to make some of those changes. But the reality is that unless we prepare and plan, we may not be able to transition in a healthy, God-honoring, unifying way. And that's what we want. Now, Ron and I, we're not planning to go anywhere. You may be stuck with us for a long time. I don't know. But (laughs) I didn't even have to prompt that, right? But I think it only takes one person to start clapping and everybody else. Oh, I guess I better clap. So we we want to continue, sir. We love you. Ron and I love you. 
And we're not looking to change next month or even next year necessarily. I don't know. I just want you to know that because of some of the changes you've experienced up here, I want to assure you that we are still on the track that, Be that Bethany, <laughs> oh man, that Calvary has been on for 85 years. We want to continue on that track of worshiping the name of Jesus Christ, exalting him, preaching expository messages from the word of God, and that unites us together to reach our community for the cause of Jesus Christ. So the continuous theme of that is no matter who's up front. And so although that may change someday, someday in the future, I don't know. Because I've heard a lot of stories about those who's going to do it and, and when it's going to happen. I've heard that I'm almost dying. And so we've got a lot of stories that are out there. And so I just want to let you know that we are intentionally and purposefully trying to develop these things. And so all that is under this uh, umbrella that I sort of stuck into the middle of this message called Family Talk, that I don't want you to experience the uncertainty that the people of Galatians were experiencing. And so therefore there was a drift away from Jesus. I don't want that. I want Jesus to be the foremost. I want him to be the preeminent one. I want us to focus on him. Now, Paul is helping them be stirred to be unchanged in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is that some people are leaving the grace of Christ for another gospel. Let me unpack that a little bit. It's important for us to not only recognize the other gospels that are trying to insert themselves into our way of life, but we need to understand what the true gospel is. You heard Eric talk about it a little bit last week. Let me break it down for you in the one passage that truly defines the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. If somebody ever asks you, what is the gospel? How can I define the gospel? You go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I'll throw it on the screen. Here is what the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth when he said this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. I don't want you wondering. I don't want you confused. I want you to know clearly what the gospel is. So I want to make it known to you. I've made it known. I want to make it known again. He says, I preached it to you, which you also received. It's been preached, it's been received, into which you also stand, and it says, by which you are saved. If you don't know the true gospel, how can you be saved? So I've preached it, you've received it, you stand in it, you've been saved by it, you should hold fast to it. You hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So that's his preface I want to give you the gospel that saves you. If you don't know the gospel, how can you be saved? So he goes on to define the gospel. He says, for I deliver to you as first importance. This is the preeminent one. This is the priority. This is what we unite around. It's not who preaches it. It's who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. This is the important part that I've also received. And here's the first of the three parts of the gospel. The first part is this, that Christ died for our sins. That's why I like to point it out in the yellow. Part number one, that Christ died for our sins because we're all sinners. According to the Scriptures, he had prophesied that in the Old Testament many, many times, that he was buried, that proves that he died. He wasn't just swooning on the cross, as some people have speculated, but he literally had died a death that someday you and I will die. And then thirdly, he was raised from the dead on the third day. According to Scriptures, Scriptures had repeatedly prophesied that as did Jesus in his day. So what is the gospel? Someone ask you, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for my sins because I'm a sinner. He died a literal death because he was buried to prove that. 
Thirdly, the gospel includes the fact is that Jesus rose from the dead the third day. And my faith and my faith alone rests in that historical event that changed the course of my eternal destiny forever. That's the gospel. It's nothing more, nothing less. Over the years that I've been doing ministry, I've had people call certain community of churches the full gospel churches. Well, this is the full gospel. There's nothing more to be added. You can't take away any of it. You can't add to it. That's it. That's the true gospel. So you need to understand the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel or another gospel that comes out. Here is the contrast that we need to understand. In the true gospel, everything is dependent upon the work of what Jesus did for me on that cross when he died for me. The false gospel, I am dependent upon my good works and the things that I do that I'll illustrate here in just a moment. The true gospel is based upon the grace of Christ. Grace is given to me what I don't deserve. I am so unworthy. We sang about that in just a moment ago. I am unworthy of God's love and God's eternal life. And so it's based upon his grace giving me to what I don't deserve. And all of us have sinned in various degrees, but we're all equally sinful before God. If you murdered someone, you're a sinner. If you've had envy and jealousy and uncontrolled anger at someone, you're just as sinful. You both need the same grace of Jesus Christ. The false gospel is that I've got to do something to earn God's favor, that I've got to really work hard at it. Now, here's what happens. If I don't get this, if I don't understand the result of living this true gospel of the grace of Christ, it's going to corrode and corrupt how I live my life today, but also it's going to affect the eternal state of my soul where I'm going to end up the day that I die. So this is where he begins to unpack that in Galatians 1.7. He says this, There are some of you who are preaching another gospel, who are going away to another gospel. There are some of you who are disturbing you and who want to distort the gospel. Let me highlight these two words. There are some that are disturbing you. There are some that are distorting the gospel. Disturbing their hearts, distorting the truth. That's the challenge that we face today. Distortion and disturbing influences of alternative gospels, fake gospels. Now imagine this. Imagine you're on an airplane, and uh, you've put on this, uh, it's your first time you've ever jumped out with a parachute. You're sitting next to your instructor, the guy with the big helmet and the face mask, and you turn to him. And you say, now, did you pack my parachute? And he says, yeah. Did you do a good job? Well, I did the best I could. (laughs) And then you ask him, do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that when I pull this ripcord, it will open and I will land safely? Do you know that? And that instructor looks back at you and says, Well, I sure hope so. (laughs) Let's keep our fingers crossed. Would you jump out of the airplane if that's the kind of confidence that the instructor gives to you? No No way, I wouldn't. Only a fool would do that. You want to have a 50-50 chance that you're going to land safely? No. You know what happens with salvation? 
How many times have you ever asked someone, as I have, as maybe you have as well, if you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? Well, here's the answer. I sure hope so. I'm trying to do the best I can. That's what you call a false gospel. And when you have a false gospel that doesn't give you confidence to know that the moment you die, you go to be with Jesus in heaven and that there is no in-between sleep zone, but you are literally in the feet of Jesus worshiping him with all loved ones who believed in Jesus as well, you want to know that. John wrote in 1 John 5, these things I have written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. So the question for us, if you were to die today, if you were to die right now with a heart attack, do you know that you would go to heaven? If you don't know that, and you're continuing on living life, but you still don't know that, you'd be as crazy as this guy to jump out of an airplane with an uncertain parachute where some instructor did the best he could, and he sure hopes it opens. It's craziness. So God came to provide for us hope that doesn't disturb us, and this disturbing nature of this is so, so undermining of everything that God wants to, to work in our lives. As he says in Galatians 1, he says, I'm, I'm concerned because there are people who are disturbing you and want to distort the truth. Here are some of the words. That word disturbing is a term, and this is where word studies, I love word studies of the original language. This word is used in a number of places. Here's one example. To be disturbed is to have a sense of loss or pain or grief. The word is used in John eleven thirty three 33 when Jesus came to the graveside of his friend Lazarus who has died. And when Jesus therefore saw her, his sister, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled or disturbed. If I don't have a firm belief in the gospel, I live every day disturbed by the sense of grief and loss that I don't know what's going to happen next. Paul writes in Thessalonians, those who are believers in Jesus do not grieve as those who have no hope. It is also used in this passage when we become fearful of, of abandonment. John used, uh, used a, quoting Jesus in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled do not let it be fearful. God wants us to live every day that when I wake up, that no matter what happens today, I don't fear what's going to happen today. I don't fear his abandonment. I don't fear the sense of loss or pain. I don't fear anything because I am in the hands of an almighty God that has sent his son Jesus to die for me. And if he sent his son to Jesus to die for me, then there is nothing he wouldn't do for me today, let alone for eternity in heaven. And so we live with this hope, not with this fear. And so there are those who preach a false gospel of do the best you can and I hope I get to heaven. And you live in a fear that, whoa, if today I died, man, I don't know what happened to me. Or you live with this fear that you've got a family member, you've got a spouse, you've got a child, you've got a parent. And if they died without Jesus, 
Oh my goodness, that's heartbreaking. You want to know. I love to do funerals where I know that this person believed in Jesus and is in heaven. That is so reassuring. We become disturbed with doubts. This term is used by Jesus in Luke 24. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Here are my hands, my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and and bones as you see that I have. This is after the resurrection. He says, I don't want you to have doubts about, oh, would I go to heaven today? I don't want you to have doubts is God taking care of me? I don't want you to have doubts that God is not powerful enough to deal with anything that comes into my life. I don't want, God doesn't want us to live with doubts about his love and his care and the saving work that he does for us. And again, if he'll send a son to die for us, man, there's nothing he won't do for us. So he doesn't want us to live with these doubts because there are those who distort the gospel. Let me give you a couple examples I'm going to give you three very quickly. I'm always burdened and concerned when I hear things that are theologically untrue and they're unsettling for people. And I don't mean this to come across in a mean spirit, a judgmental way, but I'm going to give you three examples. A lot of us love friends who are part of the Mormon church. Some of you used to be part of the Mormon church. You may be here visiting from a Mormon church for all that matter. But here's what the Mormons say about salvation. People must not, and this is from their website, not somebody who writes about their website. People must not only exercise faith in Jesus, but also change their course of life and get baptized to be saved. Salvation, in contrast, salvation from from hell is a wondrous gift from Jesus, but it is not automatic. It involves meeting specific requirements that Jesus established and that his apostles carefully taught. Along with the proper authority to baptize, Christ and his apostles also taught the proper manner in which to baptize by immersion. So in order to be saved, you have to be baptized by an authorized person, and you have to be baptized by immersion. According to Peter, even an authorized baptism by immersion did not and does not complete the requirements for salvation. One must also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by proper authority by hands being laid on by a a proper authority. Even after having received proper authorized baptism, followed by an authorized bestowal of the gift of the Holy Ghost, is a Christian saved? No, not yet. In other words, the preparatory commandment of repentance, baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit are the beginning steps on the road to salvation and necessary for exaltation. According to that, I would live in constant doubt and fear and loss because I don't know when I'm really saved. Jesus says, just believe in my death, burial, and resurrection. Boom, big time change. Jehovah Witnesses also preach baptism along with other things. And the troubling thing is, I'm going to go right down here into our church. I don't know how many times I've had a conversation with someone and asked them, Tell me about your salvation. When and how did that happen? And too many times, and I mean this in love and grace, but too many times I have people say, well, I was baptized when I was 12. No. No, 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 no. I mean, Jesus saved you because you were baptized? No. When 
did Jesus become your Savior, not when did you do something? I've had that people say that here at Calvary Church, had people say it at First Baptist in Lodi where I used to be, had to say it at Faith Baptist Church in Corona where I used to be, and maybe you've heard it and maybe you've even said it yourself. I just want us to be clear. I don't want us to distort by adding to the gospel what I do because the gospel is what Jesus did. And I choose to believe in that. And my eternal destiny depends on that. So don't throw a bunch of other stuff in there because it's very simple. He died, he was buried, he rose again. He did all so that I could be forgiven of my sins and have a holy relationship with God. Now, Matt Doan has spent this last week, a week ago, in Albania. He had some things that I wanted him to share a little bit about this whole topic as well. So let's welcome Matt Doan up here. We love Matt. I appreciate it. Oftentimes, Dave will refer to me as one of the young guys, and some of you do as well. Uh, but not everyone believes I'm a young guy. I'm 42. Uh, my daughter and I were driving to school this week. She's 11, and we sped through a yellow light here on 17th and Tustin. And she looks at me, and I thought she was going to chastise me for running through a yellow light. But instead, just with this pensive look, she goes, Dad, when you were young, did they have yellow lights? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I see my place in her world and in others' worlds, but I do appreciate being a young guy at times. As Dave continues, we already read through once uh, Galatians 1, 8, and 9, but look at it again. It says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we've preached to you, he is to be, let me just pause on that last word there, verse 8, he is to be disregarded. He is to be uh, ignored. No, look what the word says. In the NASB, New American Standard Version, it says, He is to be accursed. And then verse 9 repeats it. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. The Greek word there is the word ananthema. It has a couple different ways you can translate that word, but in this context, that word is translated cut off. Maybe your Bible even says it in this way, eternally judged. Let me say it in the PG-13 way, you are damned if you preach a gospel contrary to the one that you've heard. And Paul says, and lumping himself into this, he says, hey, even if I preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've been heard, hearing, I am to be accursed. I am to be cut off. I am to have damnation. And then he mentions we, meaning others that are around during that time. And then he says angels. And I want to point out something that's interesting to me. Maybe you'll find some interest in it as well. Dave mentioned the Mormon church. Satan's tactics repeat. He's not very inventive. And he repeats the same tactics and temptations over and over, generation after generation. And one of the ways that he has put people astray is through the use of angels. If you flip your Bible from Galatians 1, maybe one page over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you see in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen these words. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In the 7th century, there was a guy named Muhammad. 
Muhammad went on a spiritual journey. He was trying to purify himself. He was desperate for the gospel, freedom. And on this spiritual retreat, he was in a cave. And an angel, he accounts, appeared to him. And even just reading right from the Quran, in, in, the chapter, in chapter 53, Surah 53, it says, For he appeared in stately form while he was in the highest part of the horizon. Then he, the angel, approached and came closer to Muhammad. Muhammad then translated the first chapter of the Quran from this encounter with an angel, which Muhammad attributed to being the angel Gabriel. If you study Islam in, in any form or fashion, you understand that it's a false gospel. That they present Jesus as a prophet, but not as God. That they believe that Jesus went to the cross, but then was rescued from the cross, never died on the cross, and was replaced by Satan. There's no death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as God in Islam. And so Muhammad, trying to seek freedom discovers an angel of light who then leads him to a distortion of the true gospel. Dave mentioned Mormonism. Joseph Smith, on a spiritual retreat, gets away from everyone, gets alone, and he spends the entire night praying and asking God for forgiveness of sins, of his sins. And then Joseph Smith records that an angel, the angel Moroni, shows up to him And basically tells him that everyone else has gone astray and that only this angel has the right information to give Joseph Smith freedom. And then Mormonism is born. Do you see the relation between even these two false gospels? An angel appearing as light saying, I will bring you freedom and instead tax on bondage. And it says that anyone that preaches this type of gospel is to be damned. It's a serious What this means on one hand is that if any of us kind of fall into the kind of postmodern thinking that all roads lead to God and let's just coexist and and everyone's good, right? Well, there's only one true gospel. Be careful of those that would distort that truth, even if it appears in such stately form. And yet we're not called just to dismiss those that follow the Muslim religion and Mormon religion and say, all right, well, good luck to you. You're cut off. See you in hell. But instead, we should have a burden and a heart to reach those who are in the bondage of a false gospel. And so Dave asked me to share. Now I'll get to why you asked me to share. But he asked me to share a little bit about why I went to Albania last week. We have a sister church in Albania, Way of Peace Church. And last Sunday at this time, well, in about eight hours, I was able to preach to the precious people of Way of Peace Church. And my message was, better together. Have you heard that before? (laughs) And this church is doing amazing things in Albania. One of the things they're doing is they've started a church plant about a half hour from their little city of Luznia. And it's a church plant in a village that's about 85% Muslim. The Muslims have come in and really claimed this village. In fact, they did a water project where they built a well. They took a bunch of photographs of it, celebrated the the inauguration of this well. This water is going to change this little tiny village in Albania. But then they never bothered to hook up the well to any pipes. And so this village was all excited but never really got anything out of that gift. 
Way of Peace Church then came in after that and began delivering food to this village that is in poverty. Began loving the people and then presented them with the true grace of Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday at this little church plant in a village in Albania that none of us, many of us will never go to, had 45 people worshiping the true Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I love this. So I got to experience this in Albania, and then we went across the border to Kosovo. Kosovo is about 85% Muslim. It's a brand new nation. If you know any of the politics of Kosovo, there's a lot going on, even in the last week. And in Kosovo, I was able to visit a city of 15,000 people where there's not one Christian, not one follower of Jesus. And we began to dream with some Christians that are in other parts of Kosovo and Way of Peace Church in Albania of what it would look like to do a church plant in this city. And so there's exciting things going on in places that are dominated by a Muslim culture but are maybe high in in practice but low in belief. And so God is at work around the world. But let me just close in this. So I saw all these amazing things in Albania and Kosovo in the last week. But I personally had not shared with a Muslim the good news, the true gospel of Jesus. And I was praying, like, God, I've been here for a week. I want to share with one person. And on the airplane from Kosovo to Turkey, Istanbul, I sat next to a guy who was about my age. And he was wearing stonewashed jeans, holes right here, a big gold chain, (laughs) hair sticking out of his chest, uh, just sitting back. And I'm like, Lord, I know this guy's a Muslim. I want to share with them the true grace of Jesus. How can I do that? And so I said, hey, what do you do? (laughs) He's like, I I buy and sell dresses. Okay, I have nothing in common with that. Um, (laughs) uh, Again, just, okay, Lord, my Bible is in my backpack, this Bible right here. So I pulled the Bible out, and I put it on the little trade table in this Turkey Airlines little jet, and I opened a John 3.16. And I just sat there, and I just prayed with my eyes open, Lord, may you have him say something about this. 30 seconds later, he looks at me, and he goes, is that the Bible? And I go, it is. He goes, have you ever read it? I said, no, I've never read it. I was like, would you like to read it right now? Sure, why not? And so we got to read the true good news, the gospel of Jesus. I wish I could say to you, though, by the time we landed in Istanbul, he was a believer, and now he's starting a church, but that's not the case. (laughs) Planted a seed, no belief yet that I know of. But it shows you that there are Muslims that are hungry to know the true freedom we have in Jesus. As you leave today, we've placed booklets in strategic places around the lobby. Next month is Ramadan. Muslims take this month to fast, to purify themselves, to rid themselves of sin. We know Jesus is the only answer to that. And I encourage you to take one of these booklets and pray for 30 days as Muslims do. Pray for Muslims to meet Jesus in a real way, to experience freedom. With that in mind, can we just pray even in this moment that God would use us, use those around the world to share the true grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunities that each of us have in our day-to-day life to share the freedom we have in you. God, I pray for boldness and courage for all of us. But Lord, I pray specifically for Muslims and Mormons that we either interact with or maybe we'll interact with in the future. 
God, I pray that they would come to know your true gospel. Lord, there's been a distortion from an angel of light that's led them away from the true meaning of who you are, Jesus. I pray you'd use us and others to point towards you in real ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Okay. Yeah, go ahead and take the offering. That's good. Uh, Let me just wrap up with this. As I began the message, I alerted us that lack of clarity, lack of understanding, a misguided direction can have eternal results. The fact of the matter is we need to believe in the true gospel to make sure that we have our eternal destiny confirmed, but also that we can live a good life this world on this side of heaven. So I invite you once again, this question. If you were to stand before God in heaven and he should say, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? There will be those like the parachutist, I've done my best, I hope I get in. I was baptized, I took communion, I joined a church, I worked for a charity, I tried to be good, I kept most of the Ten Commandments. God would say, wrong answers. Here's what you and I should know. I stand before God in heaven. He should have said, Dave, Dave, why should I let you into my heaven? I would say, because I put my faith in the gospel, that Jesus died for my sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day, and he gave to me forgiveness and this new life. If you don't believe that, we invite you into that kind of faith relationship with God, not driven by good works, trying to do the very best, and hoping he still loves you, in the assurance, without doubt, without fear, without pain, without loss, that God is in control of your life. And so we invite you as we close the service in a little bit to come up here. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you because we don't want anybody misguided, either disturbed or distorted by the lack of full truth. So the gospel of Jesus is, repeat after me, number one, Christ died for our sins. Number two, He was buried. Number three, he rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. Our faith alone must rest in that. Let me pray. I'm going to pray for the offering now that you've given it and uh, pray God's blessing upon it. Father God, we thank you for this time. We're thankful, Lord, for your gracious kindness. You gave to us the greatest gift, and now what a privilege it is to give back to you, God, in thanks in appreciation, in adoration, in worship of who you are. So thank you for this offering and the good work that will be performed as a result, including helping Pastor Bertie and the Way of Peace Church in Albania. God, thank you for that privilege, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.